Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today has made history more than once. Dawn Butler, MP for Brent Central, was only the third black woman elected to Parliament when she became an MP in 2005, age 37. She was the first black female whip and then the first black woman to stand at the dispatch box four years later. You might know her, though, as the person who was ejected from the House of Commons for saying what so many of us were thinking and using her parliamentary privilege to call Boris Johnson a liar. But before all that, Dawn was a computer programmer. No small achievement for a black woman who grew up in the 70s. She also worked in a job centre and then for the GMB union. In short, she is not your common or garden, privileged career politician. There's no one that looks like me or acts like me or talks like me. Why would I want to put myself through that? Now 53, Dawn joined me to talk about what drives her, putting her mission down on paper for her new book, A Purposeful Life, and how being diagnosed with breast cancer two years ago caused a total and utter rethink. We also discussed menopause, learning to be still in the moment, why she has no time at all for women who pull the ladder up behind them, and the power of a lime green suit. So thank you for coming on The Shift, Dawn. I want to start by asking you to tell me about flying cockroaches. (laughs) Well, uh, it's nice to be here with you, Sam. Um, Flying cockroaches, well... It's one of the first times that I recall being called a liar and being totally sort of perplexed as to what to do. I was like eight years old and I was in primary school. And back in the day, they don't do this anymore because uh, it was... I think it's considered inconsiderate for some people who you know don't do much in the summer holidays to have to name and shame them. You know, when I was younger, it was just a thing that the teacher would say, what did you do in the summer holidays? And then you go to the front of the class and you tell everybody what you did in the summer holidays. 
So I thought I would tell the story of the flying cockroach because it was scary, but you know, I thought the class would find it exciting and be asking me questions. I mean, it was a horrifying experience for me as a child, seeing in Jamaica, outside Lou, seeing the floor just move in the dark. Yes. (laughs) And thinking, (laughs) what the hell's going on? And then a flying cockroach flies at your head. But the teacher said that I was lying, that it didn't happen that cockroaches don't fly and I couldn't understand it. And so, but you know, I faced a flying cockroach and the teacher just said, I'm lying. And I had to make a choice whether I kind of took it back and sat in my seat or because I refused to admit that the cockroach flew, that I wait outside the school classroom door and what happens is you'd wait outside the classroom door and then the head teacher would walk along the the corridors and if they saw a child outside the school door to my room to my office you know I think I went to a similar school yeah (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and so I decided to go outside but I didn't wait outside the classroom door I ran away ran and got my dad I mean that sounds it's just you know at first listen that's just like the anecdote of a small child and a snotty teacher. But actually for you, that's your, that was really a formative experience, wasn't it? Because it was the, was that the first time you'd been told that the evidence of your eyes was not true, that your experience was false? The the first time that I can remember and remember the whole thing from the beginning, you know, my feelings of excitement, to, to tell my story, my lived experience to someone who's older and in charge telling me that I'm wrong, to then being devastated and not knowing what to do with my feelings. I mean, I was welling up. I wanted to burst into tears, but didn't want to cry in front of, you know, all of my classmates. And just being confused as to why, why is somebody not believing my lived experience? And luckily, I could run to my dad. I mean, it was a bit of a, an adventure. Yeah, I really thought that when I was reading the book. It's like, it's such a seemingly small thing, but you can literally see it laying an enormous foundation stone that built dawn. And it's really funny how those little things that happen when you're a kid that might seem to your parents, to the teachers, even to other children, not significant. They can be a great big building block of you. It's weird because writing the book puts the pieces together. Because like, how often do you journey back through your life and put all the different pieces together and then think, yeah, it, it all makes sense. And that's what this did. That's what the book did, you know, and that's why, yeah, it's called A Purposeful Life because, yeah, put the pieces together. You wrote the book while you were recovering from breast cancer, didn't you? Do you think you could have written the book if you hadn't got ill? Probably not in the way that it's written because I wouldn't have taken the time. So I wouldn't have taken the time to be that still in the moment. And I think also being told you've got cancer, you think about your mortality and, you know, thinking you're going to die just has a 
different effect on the mind. Could you think I'm going to die here? You know, I don't know. I suppose you've read it. So it's nice to speak to someone who's read it to find out how you found it. But I do hope it comes across as just quite authentic. But I mean, ultimately, when I think about it, I think I want, I want to build an army. I think I want to build an army of people who want to break down the structures and systems that don't work and expose them and not be scared of somebody telling you that a cockroach doesn't fly when it does. Not all cockroaches, but some cockroaches. And I just want to build an army so that we can change the system. For too long, the system has kind of worked against us because the system is for a certain group of people, you know, mainly white men that, you know, they wrote the system, they built the system. And if we've got a voice now, it's almost like, what's the point if you're not going to use it for good and progress? And, and that's why I say with like a purposeful life, it's not that everybody has to do everything forward facing or be a politician or anything like that. It's about everybody leaning into their own purpose, whatever that might be. So it could be being a a best friend to someone, like a really, really good friend to somebody. And if that's your purpose in life, then that's amazing. Because by doing that, by being that best person, knowing that that person can come to you no no matter what it is, means that you've you've laid a foundation for your best friend to go and do whatever they want, knowing they can come back to you and you'll be there for them. So if that's your purpose, that's powerful. So that's why I hope that everyone will get something from the book and lean into their purpose. I mean, reading the book, it's like each chapter really does feel like there's the first building block and then there's the next building block and the next building block. And you can see kind of dawn forming like if you imagine you were one of those uh like pixel pictures on a on a computer do you know what I mean you can literally see you building the chapter where you had cancer 18 months ago and I'm really not going to go on about this for an hour I promise it really feels like maybe that was the cement because if it, it feels like that was the point where you went you've had all these experiences you had so much weathering you know you've been the only black woman in the room and the only black person in the room and this, this constant battling and it, it's, it seems like you almost went, okay, what am I going to do with all this? And that's not to say you weren't doing loads of stuff before because you were, but it's almost like it consolidated all those things into one place. And it definitely was, and I did the audio book and that was the most difficult, that and the forward was the most difficult part to read. I mean, I messed up quite a lot with with it, I had to keep going back. That was my cancer journey. It was like, right, let me get through this. And then when I got through it, it was like, well, okay, now what? This is a big deal. Like I didn't, at first I wanted to keep it secret. I wanted it to be a personal thing. And then I would have just gone through and almost pretended like it hadn't happened. And I know that there are lots of women who have done that. And they've done that in their workplace because they didn't want anyone to know because they don't want to be considered as weak or vulnerable. 
And then when peace that have done that, gone through a cancer journey and have not told anyone because it's really tough when you're an MP, you know, there's always someone that wants your seat anyway. And if they think you're sick, you know, it's like vultures. But yeah, it made me stop and think. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do? And let's do this. And also had to be done in a way where what I've learned from having cancer is to also protect you. Like you've got to protect your mental health because uh, you can go down like a really sort of dark rabbit hole or you can just get so engrossed and then you're kind of left with nothing at the end of the day you're spent. Also letting things go. And when you think you you know, when you think you're going to die, you're like, shit, it's just stuff. Or do you mean it's, it, it, it was a lesson in letting things go and also letting go, like in my personal life, some people who drained me. And when I was functioning a hundred percent, I mean, I was good. I almost, you know, almost like I was invincible. You know, I, took on so much. It's okay, bring it all on. But then when I was sick, I realized, oh, you can't do that anymore. And you haven't got the energy to do that. And you're going to have to let them go. And they're going to have to stand on their own two feet. And all of this anxiety that you get when you've got people who, when you've got friends who have problems and issues, and you think if if you're not there, you know, something bad's going to happen and you take that all on your shoulder. When you have to deal with your own issues and problems, you realise you've got to let it go. You've got to do a frozen. You've got to let it go. <laughs> it's. I think that there's an assumption as well that like letting it go means like stepping back and taking your foot off the pedal and all of that. And I don't think it does really, does it? It more means actually focusing on what matters to you rather than just trying to be all things to all people all of the time, which so many women do. And I think it's fair to say you were. Yeah, it's kind of very sobering. I was interested in um, a comment you make right at the beginning about your parents teaching you resilience and your brothers teaching you resistance. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think we're all so trained to see resilience as a positive it's a way of getting through in this case. It's a way of getting through the day. It was a way for my parents to make sure they had some light in the darkness because they had to put up with so much racism. You know, stuff that they, you know, my dad has, has sadly passed, but some of the stuff that we've had to put up with that they haven't spoken about, they've kept to themselves. And and you know when you listen to their stories, you almost have to resist the urge to say, "But why didn't you do something about it? You know, why didn't you? Why didn't you do this? You know, why didn't you do that?" Their their position was they needed to get through. They needed to get through their day. They had children to bring up. You know, they had to have some joy in their life, so they couldn't tackle every single bit of racism that came their way. And they were fighting all the structures in the system, from the police to the health service to education, they were fighting. I mean, that takes a serious amount of strength and resilience to just to get through. So it was just about getting through. And then, yeah, my brothers, 
it was very much about resistance, okay? You know, it's not just about taking it. It's now it's about challenging it. How do we challenge it? You know, how do we, because they're, they're, they're the next, you know, next generation now is stronger. How do we do this now? We've, we've taken enough shit. Now it's time to stop it. And so that's why I think, you know, to, to complete the power of three, we need a revolution. And the fact is, we've got all the different generations together. We've got all the tools that we need. We've got the resistance. We've got the resilience. It's the perfect recipe for a, res- for a revolution. It's, it's like it's ready. And I think when George Floyd was murdered, I think the, when I watched the marches, they were filled with different generations of people, all with a different experience, all with different cultures. And I thought, this is good. Cause there's been times when I've been on protest marches where there's only black people or there's only women and no one else. So, Cause it's like, it's their issue. But to have something where there's everybody, that to me, if we don't just step back to how things have always been, is an important time to build and grow this revolution. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the number of events I've been to, organised diversity events that are like for businesses or marches where it's been, oh, well, this is for women. So let's send the woman and the only bloke out of 500 people has been the the bloke from HR, you know, at the back. When George Floyd happened, it felt like there was going to be a sea change, but it definitely feels like the dinosaurs who have a vested interest in the status quo are really pushing. And they will, because in their minds, it's you're taking their space. And ultimately what I say is for the dinosaurs or those who protest the loudest, they know deep down they're not good at their jobs. Because if you were good at your job, you wouldn't mind competition because competition is good. It's good for growth. If you're not good at your job, then you're scared. And maybe, just maybe, you didn't get there on your merits and skills. As if. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, and that's why it's important to tackle the structures. Because if it's just a tick box, if they just put a woman in place or if they just put a person of colour in place, they might do it because it, it might look like they're diverse. But if the structures are still the same, you're going to churn out the same person over and over again. So that's why you have to deal with the structures. You've got to dismantle the structures. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, you see over and over again, okay, oh, this year's diversity is trans or this year's diversity is we need to have more black authors or this, oh, the, oh shit, working class people, we forgot about them, you know, and you just watch it happening year in, year out. Nothing really changes. It's just like a big box tick. When you went into, when you were persuaded to stand as an MP when you were, what, in your mid-30s, did you, what did you think when it was suggested to you? Did you think, why the hell would I want to do that? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, no, I wasn't interested. I totally wasn't interested. I, I was just thinking, I thought, you're joking. It's, 
not the place for me. There's no one that looks like me or acts like me or talks like me. Why would I want to put myself through that? You know, it's just a load of sort of white men who went to Uxbridge or Oxford or wherever. And I thought, nah, I'm good, thanks. Eventually, I thought, I mean, I do like to challenge myself. And eventually I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And then I realized um, once I was, once I experienced what it was like, I realized I could do this and I can do this my own way and I could be an MP and just do it my way like it is possible if that's what I wanted to do. And so that's kind of, yeah, how, how my journey started. I mean, thinking back to that time when there was literally just, and, and it's, I, I kind of can't even believe that it was 2005 because 2005 feels like, well, if you're old, it feels like not too long ago. You kind of think, oh my God, there was Diane Abbott and Una King, and then you became an MP and Una left. So from that perspective, things have really improved. But when I was doing some research earlier, I couldn't find the precise number of black female MPs because the way it's presented in all the parliamentary information is ethnic minority MPs because that number looks better. You know, if you can say we've got 66 or 67 ethnic minority MPs out of 650, so bugger all, and then, but half of them are, over half of them are women, 37 are women. That, that'll do. So it kind of just goes back to what we were saying. It doesn't say, so how many black women MPs are there? There are 13 Labour and two, I think. So there's 15 of us all together. And it's so, and I just realised in asking you to tell me the answer, I've just done what everybody does all the time and make... You do the work. <laughs> yeah. But so I'm sorry about that. That's all right. But that's the thing, isn't it? If it's, if it's difficult to find. So really, it should be easier to find that information. If it's a bad figure, own it. You know, own, own it. Own that it's a bad figure. But it's very easy. Like, I remember, um, so I was the first black female minister in the country. And I remember one day... Um, elected. So we did have, I think it might have been Brownus Amos, but that was in the House of Lords. So in the House of Commons, I was the first black female to stand at the dispatch box and speak on behalf of Her Majesty's government. So that was me. That's amazing. What would little Dawn have thought of that? Little Dawn who was giving the teachers hell for Eve being punished for periods. So I think, to be honest, I think little Dawn probably would have said, yeah, like she's going to rule the world or something. Yeah. In some way, oh, shape or form. One, some way, shape or form, not in a Boris Johnson type way, because I was sort of quite fearless. But I wouldn't have seen myself in that environment because it's stuffy, too stuffy kind of for me. But the thing was, I, I decided one day to um, ask the House of Commons Library for a list of their firsts. And I don't know what made me do it, um, but I wasn't on it. My name didn't feature on it. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, that is how easy it is to have my history erased. Well, somebody just didn't, didn't do it. They obviously just didn't, they just didn't make note or didn't do it. I mean, they changed it. 
So it's there now. But if I hadn't have asked myself and it would have been as easy as that. So, you know, years later when people get lists of firsts, my name wouldn't have been there. So Diane was the first black female MP. Then, as you said, Una came in. And then when I came in, Una was out. So, yeah, there was just two of us at that time. And, yeah, I was the first to be a minister. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. And how has, because you've experienced, haven't you, a huge amount of sexism and racism before Parliament as well, but but in Parliament, how has that influenced your approach? It's interesting because you kind of have to, as I talk about in the book, uh, choose your battles. And it's really interesting because sometimes you think to yourself, Oh my God, are we still having to put up with that? But I I think it's really interesting because you have different generations now in Parliament and they handle things uh, differently. I think you always need a refresher because what happens is you begin to tolerate things that you probably shouldn't, but because you're busy, you're tired, you know, I think about it. I mean, I do as much as I can to try and change the system and stop things from happening. But yeah, I mean, parliament is is not a good place for this kind of thing. It's, it's, it's problematic when it comes to alcohol, power structures, 
sexual deviances and behaviours. I mean, very few MPs have members of staff for longer than a few years. Staff just go because for all kinds of reasons. I mean, we don't get to pay them as well as I would like either. So that is problematic. But I mean, my team have been with me from the very beginning. But yeah, there's lots of problems. When you were, you were talking about just now about how you let things go, how one lets things go, um, that really struck a chord with me because I think if you're a woman who started work in the workplace in the 80s, as you did and as I did, and you worked in the city, you kind of learn to manage, don't you? There are things that appall you the first time they happen when you're groped at the photocopier or someone says to you, oh God, don't get in the lift with him. You know, or like happened to you at the, when you worked in the city as a programmer. Oh, just wear trousers. Then you won't be able to look up your skirt when you dropped his pen. Women of our age are so used to that. that it's so easy, isn't it? Just to kind of let it go. When the, there's a bit in the book about uh, the deputy speaker and where she said, uh, you know, you're letting women down. By wanting to go to toilet because you're pregnant and the baby's like on your bladder, you're letting people down, you know, you're letting women down. Or there's stuff like, or oh, we had it a lot worse than you. It's such, for me, that's such the wrong attitude. The attitude should be like, because it was never okay. The attitude should be, we need this fresh approach to remind us that it was never okay. And just because you allowed someone to touch your bum when they shouldn't have done. It was never okay and you shouldn't have had to part with it. It's not, it's not, it's, it's not right. And so that's why I, I, I've got my analogy of the career ladder and the escalator and the lift. Because the career ladder, which, as you say, if you went to work in the 70s or 80s, to me is all about the different rungs of that ladder, what you had to endure to go up. To, to be successful. So each ladder is filled with something, whether it's a touch of the bum, whether it's a bit of racism, whether it's, you know, touching your hair, it's, you put up with it, not that you wanted to, but, you know, you were kind of focused on sort of not destroying your career because ultimately that's what happened. You know, your career could be destroyed. Don't employ her. She's, you know, she's got issues. She's got problems. So, yeah, and that's why I say, you know, the, the structure, the basic structure needs to be not a career ladder, but a career escalator where you're just on an escalator, you're doing your work and you're being promoted. You don't have to step up all the different rungs and put up with crap. You're just on and you, and you get promoted. And then, you know, you've got the accidental managers and they're the ones that got the code to the lift. You know, the old boys club, they gave them the code to the lift. They went in there, no ladders, no escalators, straight to the top. Yeah. And that's the trouble is that Parliament is still full of them, isn't it? It's still full of people with the men, but also women of the same mould. Who will not let other women in either because they feel they they have to be the only one in that room and that makes them special. But what it really does is it makes them weak. It makes them vulnerable because they are the only one. So when they are being attacked, unless you've got an ally in that room that could be possible with a man, you are vulnerable when you're weak. So, you know, that's the other thing I'd love to sort of change that mindset of being the only one. Yeah, it's like that 
you know, it's the thing we were talking about earlier, that kind of we've got one tick box, whether it's a woman on the board or, you know, we've got a black female MP, we've got, you know, whatever. And so it's like, well, there's only going to be one seat and it's mine instead of, well, let's make some more seats. That's right. And that's why I think we have to get to the point of getting more in the room, more diversity in the room. I mean, the guys did it. That's why the rooms are the way they are. When you see women who are really, you know, good at their jobs, women in parliament, uh, stepping down because they're just fully sick of it or they're out of energy or whatever, what do you think? Do you get that or do you think, don't give up? Well, no, I completely get it. I think, I think it's sad because they're often the good ones, you know, the good ones that are going because they're like, I'm, you know, I'm better than this. My life's better than this. I want something different out of life. I'm going to do something different. And I'm trying to change the system, but the system isn't changing. And so I'm out for my own mental health and well-being. And I totally, totally get it. I am disappointed because we need to change the system. We need to change the system so that those good women stay. But I totally get it. Yeah, I totally get it. Like I'm, I, I do not want to stay in Parliament until I'm really old, and you've got to wheel me out. I, I want to. I kind of want to go while I've still got energy to do other things. So I don't see this as some do as a as a life job, but I hope that by the time I'm ready to leave and I've got involved in you know everything that I've done from the modernization committee to the independent complaints is all about changing the system, making it better. You know, when you first came to parliament, basically you got your parliamentary badge, you got a shared kind of room, you got a laptop and that's it. You're on your way. No guidance, no mentor, no one, you know, there's MPs that have never employed staff before. Nothing. You were just basically left. It's like, that's it. You made it. There you go. On your way. And it was just crazy. And I, and I said to them, but there's no way, like being a trade unionist, that you would put somebody in charge of anything without giving them proper training. And we needed to have proper training. And so I was fundamental in setting up the mentoring scheme and like the training schemes for MPs. And the thing was this, and this just shows you how the system was built, that there was a impression that if you want to take training on something, then you're going to be told you're not good enough. So you couldn't take public speaking or how to be a manager because then the media will get hold of it and they'll be like, oh, look, you've employed someone that doesn't even know how to speak to be your representative. Wrong attitude to learning and development. But that was the attitude. Yeah, and I'm, in a way, and I'm not at all surprised because if the way, you know, traditionally MPs of, you know, Oxford, they've all studied PPE, then they go in as a special advisor or whatever. They've all already got the network. So in a way, 
they might come in and get their pass and their laptop and there's a communal room and off you go, but they've already got the network. And so what you're doing is, uh, is helping people who don't have the network to come in and go, actually, here are some people, here's a network. Yeah. And they're arrogant. So even if they didn't know something, they wouldn't, they wouldn't admit to it. Yeah. I mean, you only have to look at the the news any, any single day, don't you, to see that. Um, I was interested in you something you said about being judged because you're unmarried and don't have kids. Mm. Can you talk about that a bit? As someone who doesn't have kids, I am here for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that that was that's an attack that people thought it was okay to use against me. Like I've never been ashamed of my marital status or anything like that. That's, you know, it's me, right? It's my business, what I do and if I want to get married or, or whatever. But that is just something else that they use against, you know, oh, she hasn't got kids. So what does that mean? You know, so it's like finish the sentence. Yeah, I haven't got kids and, and what? So it's, but they, they felt that that was an attack line that they can, they can use on me. And it's a choice. My life is a choice. I choose to live my life how I live it. And, but, and I, you know, and you've had to, and actually I found that there's a lot more women now, and especially in America, are now talking about the fact that they're successful and they haven't got kids and that's okay. That's how they live their life. Get over it and stop putting these societal norms on women that if you don't do a certain thing, then you're not what a real woman. Yeah, that's what it is, isn't it? You're kind of not quite fitting in the box that they think you should fit in. It's another thing that's threatening about you. Well, that's, that is it, isn't it? It's like trying to, and expecting me to crumble or be ashamed or sort of hide away or, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm good. I don't want to get married. You know, I've, I've actually gone past the age of wanting to get married. I don't want to get married. I'm fine. Getting married isn't going to complete me in in any way. I like to think that I'm a complete enough person. And I want to I want to grow old disgracefully, having a lot of fun along the way. <laughs> I pre- feel pretty sure you will. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, I just want to ask you quickly, if that's all right, about menopause. How has that, has that fitted into the into the picture are you I don't know enough about breast cancer to know if that impacts it yeah so when when I had to take these tablets like tamoxifen it was I mean it was like menopause and steroids you know waking up in sweats and all of that but yeah I think it's been tough, you know, like I was pre, you know, I had the sort of pre-menopausal, you know, when you have like heavy periods, like really heavy periods. Um, and you're just like, what the hell is happening? Um, we go through so much of the changes of our bodies, which, yeah, I think we, we do need to talk about more because it's a shock to the sort of the next generation coming up and, you know, the next generation of 
It's a shock. It's a shock. It's a shock. But, um, yeah, I think my body's still going through uh, changes. And, yeah, we have to come to terms with that, you know. Like, as I say, having cancer, knowing that, you know, my body was going to change, kind of have to come to terms with that. And then it made me think, if we can stop the younger generation being so obsessed with body image, like there was this saying, you know, I wish I was as fat as I used to be. It's mad, right? The times that you thought, oh my God, I'm so fat. And you can't even put one leg into those trousers anymore. And it's crazy what we build up. It's important that we do have body positivity. It is important that we don't say that if you're a young woman, you have to be like a size 10. You have to have whatever or do whatever. Just allow people to be who they are. And as long as they're healthy, as long as they're not breaking the law, doing anything illegal, unless it's justified, yeah, let people be. I think we will have a much better society if we let people be. Cool. I want to ask you one more question uh, before I ask you the questions I always ask. And it kind of feels like if the, if the cockroach if the flying cockroach is the foundation stone, I'm going to mix my metaphors now. The lime green trouser suit is the cherry on the top of the cake. Can you tell us a bit about the lime green trouser suit? I mean, I'm like a trained trainer. I do like public speaking and stuff and, and use experiences all the time. And I bought this lime green suit and I noticed the shock look on people's faces when I walked into a room with this lime green suit. And this is also part of sort of my journey at one stage when you think, oh, let me try and fit in. Let me wear a grey suit like everyone else to, hell no, I'm going to wear a lime green suit because I'm going to rock that today because that is who I am. And that's how I feel. And I think it looks good on me and I love it. And so it really is about being a lime, wearing a lime green suit in a gray suit operation they're panicking because all of a sudden there's a lime green suit that has invaded their space and they're a gray suit company and their customers expect them to be in gray suits and so what is this lime green suit person doing in the room and what do we all do about it and then going into panic mode and I think that that is definitely like a metaphor for so many people that walk into a room they feel they don't belong and where the room's not welcoming for them and I say wear your lime green suit with pride because eventually you'll have somebody in that room respect and admire you for wearing that lime green suit and think I might not like it but I wish I had the balls to wear that suit the next day they might wear a colorful tie just to bring a bit of their own personality to work with them because you open that door with your lime green suit. So never underestimate the power of a lime green suit. (laughs) Right. Questions I always ask. What is your emotional age? Emotional age, it depends on the day. Uh, But I would say on average about 27, because that was like, I don't know, I just felt 27. I had some stuff together then. It It was a good old age. Lots of, yeah, lots of good times. 
Give us uh, a book recommendation. So it can be something that was really significant to you when you were a kid or something you great you read last week. It can be anything at all. Malcolm Gladwell and Blink. Great book. Just makes you think about everything, a tipping point, how things happen. Basically anything Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell's written. It's mad. It's good. Yeah, but Blink was very good. Blink was a very good book. What advice would you give younger women? You're not fat would be the first thing I would <laughs> say to them. You are beautiful just the way you are and to not let others dim your light. That's so important, isn't it? Who is your old bird role model? So an older woman who's inspired you. Um, I would say Angela Bassett. Uh, I think she's phenomenal. And I just, she's think, so cool. oh, and I just think she gets just more fierce as she gets older. And she's not that old. Are you going to get more fierce as you get older? Totally. <laughs> oh, I bet they're cowering in SW1. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Totally. And it, it's great. What's your superpower? Uh, the aura. Feeling the aura of people. Knowing, I don't always get it right, but the majority time I can kind of feel someone's aura. And I quite like that because I like connecting with people. So every bone in my body wants to ask you about mine, but I'm not going to because I. You have to be in the same room. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> right, last one. How many fucks do you give? Oh, that's another saying that I saw that I totally loved. Where, like, I think it was it was on a, like a bumper sticker kind of thing, but. I've got no more fucks to give. Just love that. And I feel like I'm going to have that on a T-shirt and just walk around saying I've got no more fucks to give. Because that makes you fierce as well. Because you're just like, I'm going to do this because I've got no more fucks to give. I just want you to wear that T-shirt with your lime green suit <laughs> in Parliament. That's, that's all I want. That's your mission. set, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you, Dawn. That was completely brilliant. I love talking to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like the episodes featuring Nicola Sturgeon and Sabrina Pace Humphreys. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 